Our New Testament lesson comes from Luke chapter 20 at the end and the beginning of Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 20, starting with verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. And Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And then we're missing verse 5, which is my fault, but the disciples look up at the temple and see that it's adorned with all kinds of beautiful stones and things. And Jesus says, verse 6, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? And then our theme verse for this series on the disciplines of discipleship, once again, is Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through verse 30. Sort of the, uh, the Magna Carta of discipleship here, if you will. Let me invite you to close your eyes, maybe open your hands, and definitely open your souls, and allow the Lord Jesus to speak these words of peace and of summons into your heart and spirit. Jesus says to you, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we had uh, so such good luck, I think, with our little quiz at the beginning that I thought that it would be foolish of me not to give us another quiz this week. So let's have another quiz, shall we? Just one question this time, simple. Um, and maybe if you want, you can put your the letter of your answer into the uh, chat. Ready for this? Everybody see the question here? The question is, when were the chapter and verse numbers in your Bibles added to the Bible? When was it? A, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit and added by the Bible's authors as they wrote. B, they were added by the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. C, they were added by Anselm of Canterbury in AD 1109. D, they were added between the 13th and 6th century. E, they were added by American publishing companies in the mid 
19th century. What do you think? Okay, B seems to be a popular answer, not A. <laughs> D, okay. You guys are a little bashful this morning. Sam says, Jesus, that's a good answer. But actually, Sam, you're wrong. Sorry, Jesus did not add the first numbers and chapter numbers to the Bible. Good guess, though. Okay, we had a flood of D at first, and now we're starting to get a smattering of, um, or sorry, we had a a bunch of B, and now we're getting a smattering of D thrown in there. Okay, and we have our our resident Bible scholar says, some are medieval and some are early modern. (laughs) That's probably the right answer. Whatever my answer was, I'm just going to go with uh, Philip Lassiter's answer, I think. Okay, so, ready? The answer is, in fact... The answer is, in fact, D. Philip is right. Some are medieval additions, so the 13th century, for example, and some were added around the 16th century. Okay? And did you know, by the way, um, I think my screen is still available, that some of the earliest copies of the original books of the New Testament kind of looked like this. This is on papyrus, right? And as you can see here, the, uh, the letters are kind of all jumbled together. These are Greek letters, and they're kind of all jumbled together. There's no punctuation marks. There's no lowercase and uppercase, and there's not even a space in between the letters. Interesting, huh? And you thought learning German was hard. Okay, here's, by the time they invented the book, ladies and gentlemen, they're like, ooh, a new technology that will help us read, right? A book. They still had not inv- invented apparently, for Greek, punctuation and spaces in between words or lowercase letters. So this is, I think, the Codex Sinaiticus, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And that's kind of what it looked like. Why in the world am I telling you all this? Um, Not just for, um, for my health or yours, but in order to make this point. Uh... When we read the Bible and we see that there are divisions of chapters and verses, we need to remember that as far as we understand, the Holy Spirit did not guide or institute the division of the Bible into chapters and verses. 99.9% of the time, that doesn't matter at all, right? They're just conveniences. They're just helping us figure out our way through the Bible, But every now and then, they made a dumb decision when they divided books into chapters and verses. And this, I think, is one of those unfortunate decisions. All of us have heard this story at the beginning of Luke chapter 21, if we've been in the church for any amount of time. This famous story of the widow who gave two little copper coins and put it into the temple treasury. And Jesus takes notice of this woman and her action, and he makes a remark about it to the disciples. He says, look at this woman. She gave everything that she had. Out of her poverty, she gave. Today, we're exploring the discipline of discipleship known as giving. 
And I'm going to show you how this story about this widow and her giving actually has nothing to do with giving, number one. And number two, it actually has everything to do with giving. <laughs> it has nothing to do with giving. It has everything to do with giving. Let's see what this could possibly mean. So first, this story has nothing to do with giving. You might say, what? My Sunday school teacher said that it did. Okay, your Sunday school teacher, as we'll see later, is right. I'm not going to contradict her. But all we really need to do to realize that this story of the widow has nothing to do with the discipline of giving is actually, as we did, to read a few verses before this story and a few verses after this story of the widow and her gift. As we read at the end of Luke chapter 20, Jesus says what? He says, beware of the teachers of the law. Their desire is respect. They are looking for material wealth, positions of prominence. They want to stand up week after week, day after day in this beautiful temple, and they want to speak and to be heard as if they were the voice of God. And that will earn them the best seats at the feasts. And the way Jesus describes this posture of the religious leaders is he says, these people will devour widows' houses in order to gain wealth and respect and prestige. They'll devour widows' houses. Now, right about the time that Christian scholars were saying, hey, chapters were nice in the 13th century. Now it's the 16th century. What if we added verses and subdivided our chapters in the Bible? Right about the time Christian scholars were doing that, uh, something else was happening in the church. Church leadership was building a massive structure in Rome. And of course, they needed money to fund this massive structure. So a fellow named John Tetzel went around from town to town, village to village, offering people really a deal that they couldn't refuse. What was the deal? If you buy a brick or a piece of stained glass for the construction of our church in Rome, then your loved ones will be released from suffering and brought into heaven. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so poor peasants had to decide between getting their dead parents into heaven or buying bread for their families. And there was a monk in Germany named Luther that said, you know what, that's kind of stupid. If a church leader has the power to send everyone to heaven, why wouldn't he just do it right away? Now, Jesus says at the end of Luke 20, right before the story of the widow and her two coins, that the people who engage in this kind of spiritual abuse will be judged. And then you turn the page to chapter 21. Unfortunately, it's a new chapter, but it's all the same story. And it's as if Jesus, having said all that, looks up and says, for example, check out this widow here. Don't you see the religious leaders have gotten inside of her head and inside of her heart. They have convinced her that if she loves God, then she had better give more and more and more. If she wants God to love her, 
she had better support this building and the people who make their living off of it. And then immediately after the widow gave all that she had to the temple treasury, the disciples said, that's a little depressing. Look, Jesus, look at the temple. It's so beautiful. And look at the stones and how beautiful they are. And what does Jesus say? It's a beautiful building. The whole thing is going to be destroyed. And then in the year 70, it was destroyed. God does not need your money. God has the cattle on a thousand hills. And so do not let any church leader tell you that if you just had more faith, then you would give more money to the church. This kind of religious pressure to give out of guilt is always about building up a mere human institution. Jesus never says, never suggests that everyone ought to be just like this poor widow, even though without realizing it, my pastors and elders and Sunday school teachers and vacation Bible school leaders kind of accidentally made her the model for faithful giving. Jesus doesn't, though. The buying and selling of tickets to heaven in the 16th century to build up a big church in Rome had nothing to do with the discipline of giving. And the widow, giving all that she had to fund the temple and its corrupt employees in the first century, also has nothing to do with the discipline of giving. But, on the other hand, the story of the widow and her two coins has everything to do with giving. Why does Jesus point out the widow if he's not showing us an example of her great faith? He likes to do this all the time in the gospel. He points people out. But he's not doing that with this woman. Why not? Because the heart of God is for the widow. God doesn't need her example. God wants justice and mercy for her. And so the Lord Jesus wants justice and mercy for her also. The discipline of giving is not designed to build buildings and to buy stained glass windows and to give religious institutions bigger budgets and bigger bank accounts. That's not what it's all about. The discipline of giving is designed, like all of our biblical disciplines of discipleship, it's designed to do this one thing, to apprentice our hearts to the heart of the Lord Jesus. And what do we find in the heart of the Lord Jesus? Well, we find the same heart that we see in the heart of God as we read the Old Testament scriptures where true religion is defined how? As def it's defined as concern for four kinds of people. The poor, the orphans, resident aliens, and widows. And then in Jesus' day, that meant Samaritans and Gentiles and tax collectors and prostitutes. In other words, people to whom our hearts do not naturally go out in love. 
for our hearts to be filled with love and pity for our traditional ethnic enemies, for our hearts to be filled with compassion for prostitutes and tax collectors, our hearts have to be supernaturally changed. And so Jesus calls us to the discipline of giving in order to tune our hearts to his own heart. And his heart, as we see over and over in the Gospels, is attuned to the needs of the oppressed and the destitute. So when Jesus sees this widow giving everything, his heart isn't thrilled by her amazing example. His heart is grieved and broken. Why? Because instead of helping poor widows get the food and the shelter that they need for themselves and for their children, the religious leaders of his day had convinced her that she had better give, give, give if she wants God's blessing, God's love, God's forgiveness. They are devouring widows' houses, Jesus says, when they should be building up the destitute houses of widows. They are tearing down their houses in order to build up their own houses. The false discipline of giving teaches us that if we give to the church, God has to bless us in exchange. The true discipline of giving teaches us to tune our hearts to the needs of the needy. The false discipline of giving tells us that we had better tithe if we want God's love. But the true discipline of giving tells us that we had better love the needy because Jesus does, and he is our master. The false discipline of giving piles on guilt so that we can get on with growing our religious institutions. But the true discipline of giving will pry open our clutch fists so that our treasure and our heart can then be opened so that our treasure and our heart can then move toward the empty hands of people who are in great need. Friends, the New Testament is radical. It calls us to be open-hearted and open-handed, first in to one another in the Christian community so that there is not one of us in the church who is destitute. And then we are called to, to turn outward so that the followers of Jesus in this community become known for their radical generosity to people who don't believe like them, who don't look like them, who don't speak like them, and who don't live like them. There's a different kind of joy without guilt in the real discipline of discipleship that is giving. I wonder if you've had the joy of preparing the uh, Weinacht Speckli. Not, as I said it in 2018, the Weinacht Speckli, but the Weinacht Speckli. Love in a box, which we'll hear about in a few moments, gives you a chance each Christmas time to bless someone very much like the widow for whom Jesus was so concerned. I wonder if you've ever had the joy of being over by Stadelhofen, and someone asks you for money for their, their needy children. And instead of giving them money, you ask them if it would be okay if you brought them over to the Migro or the Cope. And they need diapers, and they need bread, and they need milk, and they need eggs, and they need toilet paper. And you tell them, you've had the, have you had the joy of doing this? You tell them, 
grab a shopping cart and put the things in the cart that you need. And then they ask you over and over again with each item that they pull off the shelf, is this okay? Are you sure that this is okay? And you show them the dignity of allowing them to make their choices about what they need. Maybe you let them know about some of the social services that are available in town, and maybe you walk with them over and advocate for them. Maybe you invite them to visit our church. Maybe when they've thanked you for what to them is this stunning act of generosity that ultimately doesn't really cost you all that much, what if then you just said, Jesus loves you, he loves me, and so I love you, and may God bless you. Have you had the joy of doing something like that? It is easy to make an automatic deduction from your bank account to the church. And actually, maybe some of you should do that. It's easy to hand a person 20 francs over by Schadelhofen when they look like they're going to ask you for money. And actually, maybe you shouldn't do that. But it's not so easy, is it, to look a person in the eye, to engage with their need, and then to try to meet some part of that need and to do it personally. It costs you your time and your money and your emotions and your attention. Friends, that is the discipline of discipleship that is giving. You and I cannot meet every need, but you can walk around with an increasingly generous heart that is open to making a human connection with someone in need. And you can walk around with a wallet that is ready to meet some small part of that need. Jesus calls us here to look at the widow with compassion, to be open-hearted, to be big-hearted toward her whenever we see her around, to discipline our hearts until they naturally, until they supernaturally are ready and eager and joyful at the chance to bless her. Religion takes, but the gospel of Jesus Christ gives. Religion is here to take, but the gospel gives. Luke 21 is confusing. Jesus goes on and on about how the temple is going to be destroyed and all the timing and mysterious signs about it. It was a judgment upon the corrupt religious leaders of his day who ultimately misrepresented the very heart of God. And in a way, what Jesus is saying here is that the only way to release this poor widow and the people for whom she stands is to bring the whole thing down. But you know what Jesus is saying at the very same time? He's also saying the temple is not just the doomed structure that Jesus and his friends were looking at. The temple, Jesus says over and over again in the Gospels, is what? Is his very body. His human body was, after all, the truest and best place where God's presence, like a temple, fully dwelt. His human body was a better representation of the truth and goodness and beauty of the invisible God than this beautiful temple that they were all staring at. And so when Jesus says, look at this widow, she gave everything she had, her very livelihood for that temple. He's at the very same time telling us what he is ready to do 
for us. He didn't just come to wreck bad, dead religion. He came to raise bad, dead humanity from the dead. And his body was the temple that was destroyed, destroyed by bad religion. Well, Jesus came to demonstrate the heart of God for the fatherless and the poor and the widows. And what is the heart of God for the poor, the fatherless and the widow, the prostitute and the tax collector? The heart of God says, I value these outcasts so much that I would die for them. And in Jesus, the heart of God takes human flesh to release poor widows like us. Prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and Samaritans like us from the burden of our own sins, from the burdens of guilt and shame, from the burdens of bad religion. The Lord Jesus gave his own body to be destroyed. Have you felt the widow's release from oppression in your own experience of Jesus? Did you know that Jesus was willing to have the body of his temple torn down to the ground in order to raise you up with him to new life, forgiving your sins and making you a new creation? Well, friends, when you enter that kind of new and abundant life in Jesus Christ, then you will be free and glad to give, to give. Giving is a discipline. It will be hard, and then it will be not quite so hard, and then it will be kind of easy, sort of normal. And then finally, once your apprenticeship to the heart of Jesus really gets going, it will be joyful. May that be true for our hearts as we apprentice them to the giving heart of Jesus. Father, may the words from my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you in Christ have been our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen.